Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. What year would you consider to be the worst year in the history of television? Some would argue it was the 1973-74 season where practically 99% of new programs that debuted that year wound up getting cancelled before the season ended, while well-established hits reigned supreme. And if you heard our fifth mini-sode, this was also the year that brought us the contrived award show gimmick known as the Super Emmy. So, to that respect, that could be considered the worst year of television simply by scale of cancellations and decreased viewership. Then again, really take a look at some of the one-season wonders that made it to the small screen that year. Despite their failures, a lot of them have gone on to become cult favorites that somehow found their way to digital retro TV channels for various weekend offerings. And to that end, even being declared a cult favorite is at least some level of success. Now, if you want to talk about shows that were canceled not just because the ratings were low, but because the audience watching flat out rejected them, then come with me to the year 1983. The year NBC pitched a literal no-hitter. You've got to be there. In spite of the fact that the Peacock was well on its way up the comeback trail after years of missteps, their 1983 TV season was infamous for the fact that every single new offering that they had that year came and went in the blink of an eye. Possibly CBS's eye because of their seemingly never-ending dominance as the number one network at that time, and NBC's misfortune of trying to counter-program them on their most watched nights of the week. A total of nine shows debuted that year. Some of them lasted half a season, others lasted half a month, while only a few managed to make it the entire season before ultimately getting the axe. And while we hope to take a more in-depth look at all of NBC's failures of 1983 at some point, the show that we're highlighting today turned out to be one of the luckier ones of that year. Whenever I had a big problem to work out, it helped me to think if I could brush someone's hair. When I was going through puberty, my little sister went bald. <laughs> For reasons we'll get into, this is a show that simply should not have worked. Whether it be because the show took a bunch of tired, hackneyed sitcom cliches and recycled it into their own thing, or the fact that this was one network's attempt to pick apart another aging show's carcass before the buzzards got to it, this is one maid that's going to make an uninhabitable mess in Telehell. This story begins with the careers of two successful comedy writers, the duo of Gordon and Lynn Farr, no relation to Corporal Klinger of MASH fame. Between the two of them, they wrote for some of the biggest hits of the 70s, including Love American Style, The Bob Newhart Show, and yes, even On the Love Boat. Strange, that seems to be popping up a lot in my reviews lately for some reason. Anyway, with all those years of success in both writing and producing for TV, NBC 
which by that time was being run by programming icon Brandon Tartikoff, decided to take a chance on the duo and an idea of theirs that had been simmering for some time. The idea of a young, buxom 20-something who moves to New York City to fulfill her dreams. Of what, we don't know. But while on her way to fulfilling those dreams, she takes a job becoming a live-in maid at the apartment of two swinging bachelors. One, a clean yuppie, and the other, a bit of a slob. And right about now, I know what you're thinking. Where have I heard some of this before? Well, you're right to think that there may be more than a couple of liberties taken with this idea. The notion of a yuppie-slob combo living together, for instance. Of course, that's the obvious copycat that we see here. The other obvious one lies in the fact that a total stranger who's new in town is looking for a place to live, much to the hesitation of the potential roommates that she's willing to move in with. Were it not for the gender swap, where have I heard that before? We're only going over the concept of the show, not even nearing pushing the play button or finding out who's in it, and we already have two violations of premeditated ripoffs, especially one that, as of 1983, was just about on its last legs. So, perhaps the people behind this show were ready to pluck that carcass clean. Then again, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here. After all, imitation is a sincere form of flattery, and hopefully the Far duo came up with something that they can make into their own. And in the spirit of not judging a book by its cover, let's take a look at the cast. First, we've got our maid. As in the one, we got it, in the title of the show. Her name is Mickey, and she's played by relative showbiz newcomer and future ex-wife to emergency Dukes of Hazard cousin Vance, Terry Copley. And at the risk of saying something highly disparaging against someone who I'm certain was good at what she did, her acting range kind of went a specific way. And I'll leave it to you to figure out what it is. Uh, but you two want to talk business. Merges are way over my little blonde head. Uh, I'd better straighten up. Well, then I'll give you a hand. I knew you'd say that. The other reason why I don't want to be too disparaging is because, as I found out through research, a few years ago, Copley wound up switching to the other team. No, 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 not that one. Uh, one of, shall we say, biblical proportions. And I got on my knees in the hotel room, and I said, Lord, you've given me this life, and I've made a mess of it. Please take it back, and please just let me serve you. The love I felt from Jesus just consumed me. Jesus Christ! No, literally, she became a born-again Christian in the 90s, and she hasn't looked back since. But hopefully this doesn't affect our overall thoughts on the subject at hand. The rest of the cast featured up-and-coming actors Matt McCoy and Tom Villard as the show's pseudo-Oscar and Felix, yuppie lawyer Dave, and messy salesman Jay, respectively. Rounding out the cast were the gentlemen's girlfriends, played by Bonnie Ursef, and future co-star of the long-running cop classic Hunter, Stephanie Kramer. With all of these elements in place, all that was left was a company and an executive producer willing to put it together. Fortunately, the Fars caught a break when MGM... Yes, that MGM... decided to take a chance on the show by being its distributor. 
and its production company was yet another up-and-comer in the business, that of the Intermedia Entertainment Group, helmed by its founder, one Mr. Fra... Oh, crap. <sighs> yes, folks. This program is yet another in the long line of hits or misses that has the fingerprints of our charter patron saint of telehell, the late Fred Silverman. As a matter of fact, this was one of the first shows his newfound production company developed once he was given the heave-ho by NBC, who, as a reminder in this story, was well on its way to making a comeback after years of mistakes that were made on his watch. And now they're going to tempt fate again. It sounds like trying to reward somebody who just quit smoking cigarettes with a tin of chaw. Look, I don't want to keep taking a dump on the guy, especially in the condition that he's in now, but the fact that he's become synonymous with television infamy is pretty unavoidable at this point, and we wouldn't be doing our job if we didn't highlight the lowlights. Nevertheless, NBC decided to take a chance with a man with a golden gut one more time for old time's sake. The show, now titled We Got It Made, will premiere in NBC's 1983-84 season. And we'll see how this maid cleans up. After the break. It's NBC Week, and the Real People Express keeps on rolling. All aboard as television's number one traveling show continues its non-stop fun trip through America in a very special edition. It's a carload of laughs, surprises, and... It's real. People. Look out, comedy is growing up. We are entering a new world of higher learning. Right, boys? High school days become a thing of the past. Have either of you seen my basic anatomy? What? College is just what I thought it would be. It's a crash course in laughs on the season premiere... Spoken from the heart. ...of Facts of Life. It's the hit show everybody's talking about. Sounds good. A comedy so funny, you'll laugh till you turn blue. <laughs> I look like a giant smurf. We got it made. It's exciting. It's stupendous. It's television's biggest week. It's NBC week. What? What? Be there. September 8th, 1983. Video arcades welcome the challenge of Sinistar. Run, run, run. Beware, coward. Michael Cimbello's Maniac was well on its way to being a one-hit wonder. And at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central and Mountain, Fred Silverman's first independent TV production hit the airwaves in the most earwormy way possible. <laughs> as annoying as the theme to Quark, but this song still ranks up there as one of the most annoying TV themes we've heard around here so far. However, there is one thing that makes this theme slightly more tolerable, and is arguably the reason why the show lasted as long as it did. A tight shot of a tight t-shirt. Specifically, Terry and her Copley's clinging closely in thin pink fabric. Yes, I know, that's a pretty chauvinistic thing to think. But prove me wrong that sex sells. Chances are that tittle, uh, I mean title sequence, was probably the show's highest rated minute week after week. Unfortunately, the ratings would take a nosedive as soon as we got into the actual show's content. 
I should also apologize in advance for the constant chirping and muddy audio you'll hear in the background from here on out. When all you have in hell is a VHS with no head cleaner, you gotta make do with what you've got. We begin with our yuppie lawyer trying to rehearse for an upcoming case. Your Honor, my client's a man of excellent character. He's a family man, a veteran, a churchgoer. And let us not lose sight of the fact, this is only his first murder. <laughs> Meanwhile, our messy salesman is pitching one of what I'm sure will be many items to hit the sharper image catalog never. All right, what is it this time? I've imported 5,000 musical toilet seats that play Here Comes the Bride. <laughs> Oscar and Felix, they are not. Which leads us to the overall crux of the show. We don't need a housekeeper. Jay. It looks like a garbage truck exploded in here. <laughs> so you have to start cleaning up this mess around here. Jay, I can't concern myself with picayune details. I'm an ideas man. I deal in ideas. I have to be able to soar like an eagle. Soar like a hawk. Wallow like a pig. And one thing I gotta give this show credit for is the fact that they established what one of the main goals were in the first two minutes. So, at the very least, we're getting to the point right away. A point that is further punctuated by the arrival of the two girlfriends. We can't afford a live-in maid. Jay, it's gonna save us money. See, I spend a fortune taking clients to restaurants. Yeah, and every time you import something, you entertain buyers. Yeah, but... So we hire some nice middle-aged lady to cook and clean. You bring the people here and entertain them. Right. Bingo, bigger orders, more clients. Success, travel. Fast cars, loose women. Look where you're ahead. And again, props to the show for making the main goal known without having the viewer be baited on for something to happen. While three-fourths of the cast agreed that a housekeeper would be a good idea, Messy Jay is bizarrely anti-made for some reason. Don't you see what's going to happen? We'll lose our individuality. We'll lose our freedom. We'll lose our God-given rights. What? Who needs some old bitty shuffling around here smelling like tuna fish and absorbing junior? And as sure as that declaration was made, who should show up but our tightly dressed star? Yes! I've only been in New York an hour, and I've already got a job. <laughs> well, we'll uh, need some references, Mickey. A immaterial day. <laughs> Mr. Yuppie then tries to be the voice of reason. Well, you can't hire someone just because they're gorgeous. Why not? Hey, look, we want someone who's good at the job. What job? <laughs> See, she's never done this before. And besides, we can't afford that kind of money. Okay, mini tangent. Ignoring the inexperience of our potential maid, they say they can't afford a housekeeper even though they clearly established that they, a young lawyer and a salesman, with girlfriends, in a New York City Midtown Manhattan apartment no less, said that they were looking for a housekeeper. Well, congratulations, show! You just negated yourself within the first five minutes, and you haven't even gotten into hijinks or shenanigans yet. Hell, maybe the title of the show is more of a declaration of financial solvency than we thought. Because, folks, the maid in We Got It Made is spelt M-A-D-E, not M-A-I-D. Moving on, we get a little more insight as to why Mickey's even here in the first place. Why did you come to New York? I lost my job. And my personal life's been kind of a mess. My boyfriend ran off with another woman. Oh, well, that happens. 
Nikki ran off with my mother. But Nikki, why a housekeeper? Because it's good, honest work. And I enjoy helping people. Because I'd have a home. And on that note, ladies and gentle demons, I'd like to introduce you to another term for your show business glossary. A little something called... Flexible Reality. Flexible reality is what happens when one writes a TV show and is willing to bend, shape, or form what happens in the real world to whatever version of it they wish to have. Whether it be the cast of friends living in two giant apartments with obscene exceptions to rent control laws, or someone gets a platinum credit card, goes overboard on the spending, and is somehow debt-free by the end of the episode, or the ability to drive cross town in a major metropolitan area within an inhumanly short time limit, or, in the case of this show, the boys not only taking pity on Mickey without ever having to do a background check, but also taking her in as their live-in maid. With no experience. In New York City. With two guys. Total strangers who have girlfriends. Who I'm sure is going to take the news very, very well. Give me a break, you couldn't find a more unrealistic scenario in a Craigslist ad. But, take pity on her, they do. She's alone in the jungle of New York. Never mind you and me and our petty concerns. If we can make but one person a little happier, <laughs> we'll have made the world a better place for all mankind. Thank you, Alan Alda. Speaking of the girlfriends, we see how they react as Stephanie Kramer pretends she's eyeing her future contract for the show Hunter in the Distance. Beth, Claudia, this is Mickey. <laughs> Bye. Naturally, the girls are skeptical that the boys would allow such a form-fitting wild card into their lives. But for the sake of flexible reality, maybe this can be discussed like rational adults. When you get to know her, she's really great, really. David, I'm fine. Look, I've had my little tantrum, but I'm all right now. Really, see? See? Happy. <laughs> so happy. Or maybe the levels of jealousy will reach soap opera heights without actually giving the girl a chance first. Do you honestly think that someone like Mickey could come between you and me? Yes. <laughs> No way. Hey, Mickey, sit down. You must be pooped. So, as we begin Act 2, the girlfriends leave for a previous assignment while Yuppie and Messy stay behind to do some work, with everybody fully aware that a certified C-cup is now living under their roof. I'll see you later. Work hard. Believe me, work's the only thing on my mind. Okay, bye, David. Bye, Mickey. Joke. <laughs> joke. Mild form of humor. Very mild. <laughs> As the boys are doing their work, Mickey, who is trying to take a bath, calls for their assistance. Hey, can somebody help me? I forgot my shampoo. I'll get it! Jay! But, whoa! The boys accidentally get locked in the bathroom with Mickey only wearing a towel. Oh, no! A mind is a terrible thing to waste. Well, we're gonna have whoa. 
And because this show isn't hackneyed or contrived enough, the three of them try to figure out how to get out of the locked bathroom. Just as the girlfriends come back, which is the perfect place to add in one of those manufactured suspenseful moans. David? Oh! Oh, the show did that for me. Well, thanks, I guess. Anyway, the boys hem and haw their way out of the bathroom while Mickey sneaks out a window. Back in the days when New York City apartments didn't seal their windows shut to prevent others from sitting on the ledges. But again, flexible reality. More wild goose chasing occurs as Messy Jay goes back into the bathroom to see if Mickey is reenacting the Robert Hayes role in the movie Cat's Eye, which it turns out she does, as she's then seen scaling the windows of the apartment trying to get back in without the girls finding her out. And for the sake of this being a podcast, I wish I could describe the next few minutes for you without having to schedule myself a full frontal lobotomy. As the show goes through a series of hoop jumps and try to convince us that what we're watching here is actually funny. Everything from one of the guys thinking she's fallen off the building to the constant and sometimes embarrassing distracting of the girlfriends to Mickey's towel getting blown away to that same nude Mickey trying to sneak back into the apartment while one of the girlfriends delivers a lengthy monologue. Just about every variation you could think of involving these aforementioned jokes have been used to death on every sitcom ever made since the beginning of time, let alone the odd couple in Three's Company. But the difference between those shows and this one is that they were able to pull off some kind of original spin on things. Here, it just feels like something that was refrigerated and reheated for no other reason than to keep mold from growing on the future specimen. Eventually, the frivolity comes to a merciful stop. Look, I've tried to be nice, I've tried to be understanding, I've tried to be nude, but I'm telling you right now, it's actually keeps going, because we've got one other thing to rip off, and this one is more Three's Company-esque. The part where once things blow up in everybody's face, we get the assurance that it was all a big misunderstanding. It looks like I've screwed up again, like I always do. I'll save you from having to fire me. I'll just be going. Where will you go? To my room. That's where my suitcase is. And were this not the bizarro world, this is usually the part of any given TV show where things are about to wrap up. I hope you're proud of yourself. You're the one who insisted we get a housekeeper, and she's great. You're right. And you told me you can't hire someone just because they're gorgeous. Well, you can't fire someone just because they're gorgeous either, right? Don't interrupt. She needs this job, and she needs us. You're right. Don't give me that. Hey, all point right there would be the perfect time to roll the credits. Except there's about two minutes left. And what happens in that final two minutes? Well, later that night, while Messy Jay is sleeping, Mickey enters his room wearing something sheer and dusting everything in the process, followed immediately by her unwittingly entering Jay's bed. Not only does it turn out that Mickey's a sleepwalker, but even more upsetting, this episode is slapped with the three most dangerous words in the English language. To be continued. We've got it made.
That's right. The first episode of the show was actually part of a two-parter, meaning that we're only halfway done with our half-baked stupidity. I think I'm gonna need to get hydrated before we continue. Uh, can I get a glass of water, please? Oh, right. I have to keep reminding myself that I'm currently living in a place that's constantly engulfed in flames. Fair enough. Moving on to episode two. We should point out that this is the episode where, although we get cleaner audio, you're gonna get hit with incessant VCR chirping throughout. So we're gonna try to keep this one as brief as we can. Act one of show two starts right where we left off, with Mickey sleep dusting her way to Jay's bed. With hilarious results! It's not your fault, I'm a real hunk, but you made this bed, and so now you gotta... No, no, no. no uh, look, look, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna cover my eyes, and I'm gonna count to three, and when I open them, you'll be gone, okay? Here we go, okay? One, two, three. Okay, let's try Roman numerals. And while we have a moment to collect ourselves from holding our sides after having them get split by so much mirth, let's take a minute to recognize the work of the late Tom Villard, who, arguably and begrudgingly, is probably the only other part of the show aside from Terry Copley's figure that actually gives this show a saving grace. Yeah, he's playing dumb to the nth degree here, and yeah, he also sort of made a career out of playing similar roles, but the one thing I'll say about him is that he's probably the only person in the cast who's giving it his all, no matter how stupid some of the dialogue may be. Sadly, as we just mentioned, Villard is a person who has ceased to be. As in 1994, just a few months after he became one of very few actors at the time to come out to the LGBTQ community, Villard would pass away due to complications from AIDS. He was only 40 years old. Boy, this is gonna be an awkward transition now. Then again, have I learned anything from our previous show about awkward uses of the laugh track? Let's try Roman numerals. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I'm sure he would have been cool with this anyway. Moving on, Jay bolts out of his room to alert the yuppie to what's going on through a series of spastic pantomimes, all while he's in the middle of a passionate embrace with the future Dee Dee McCall. Eventually, she leaves so Jay can be a little more verbal. By the time the boys get to Jay's room, Mickey disappears once again, only to reappear in the yuppie's bed instead. Oh boy! When I said she was in my bed, did anyone believe me? No! Now, I suppose you expect me to believe that there's somebody in your bed. Jay, she's in my bed. Maybe, maybe not. Through a Laurel and Hardy-esque routine, the boys pick up Mickey and return her to her bed. With hilarious results! On the next day, they try to figure out how to prevent this from happening again. Aside from NBC rejecting the script in the first place. And while perfectly good muffins accidentally get dumped into a fish tank, one of the girlfriends tries to figure out what's going on. You know, Jay, I can always tell when you're fibbing if I just look in your eyes. <laughs> oh no, not the tear. Well, fill your gut. Okay, 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 Mickey went to bed with me last night. Now, 
in a sane, rational world, a better way to have handled that is to simply say to her that Mickey has a sleepwalking problem and that she accidentally climbed into both men's beds. And if it were that same rational world, the girlfriend would probably understand the situation in a sane, logical manner. Unfortunately, we've got about 20 more minutes to film, and this show lives in a world that's full of more contrivances than a poorly acted movie of the week. So instead, we get this. Come on, you expect me to believe that a normal, healthy, red-blooded girl like Mickey could wind up in bed with someone as gorgeous as you and nothing happened? She's got a point. I was sleepwalking. I mean, I would never go near Jay's bed if I was in my right mind. She's got a point. With another 18 minutes to go until this is over, the other non-Copleys get serious. So until Mickey copes with her stress, she'll just keep walking around here in the middle of the night, getting into our beds, and that teeny tiny nighty. David, it's me! Claudia! Or at least as serious as a show that tries too hard to be wacky could get. But go on. Calm down. What's the worst thing that could happen? She'll leave me and I'll die a lonely old man in a room full of cats. Just then, future Sergeant McCall checks in to try and attempt to get the plot moving in some sort of direction. I think there's only one way I can get over this crazy jealousy. Would it be okay if I stay here a couple of days? Act two of show two starts with the gang staying awake all hours, and also doing their impression of the dead string quartet from season two of SNL. How's that for a deep cut reference? After coming to, the gang tries to figure out a way to prevent Mickey from sleepwalking again. But what if I sleepwalk? We lock you in your room. We jam a chair under the knob. We nail the door closed. But what if I have to powder my nose? Powder your nose? Why? You're not going anywhere. Hey, grow up. She means she might have to go tinky-doo. Just then, Hunter's soon-to-be sidekick comes in to send Mickey to bed, as though she's about to go on a nature hike with Mickey as a human rucksack. Body on steroids. Afterwards, the rest of the gang takes turn guarding Mickey. <gasps> With hilarious results. Guys, wake up, wake up. Mickey's gone. Check Jay's room. Come on. She's not in here. She's not in the bathroom. She's not in Jay's room. Is she in the closet? She was. Her coat's here. All that's missing is the Benny Hill music, and somehow this will become an automatic masterpiece. The gang make a beeline for Stephanie Kramer's bedroom, where... Whoa! Here's the plan. It's foolproof. We don't let Claudia find out about this. But if she wakes up, we kill her. And I'm sure this would have made a great comedy scene if I didn't see this done to death on many other sitcoms before. Using mathematics, I'd say this was about 45% Three's Company, 31% I Love Lucy, 23% Laverne and Shirley, and 6% Butterscotch Ripple. That's 105%. But I digress. Mickey is sleepwalking. Again? Sleepwalking? What do you think, I'm an idiot? Don't answer that, Dave. It's a trick question. Okay, talk. You're mad, aren't you? How the hell could you do this to me? Claudia, I love you. I don't care about any other woman in the whole world, and you know that. Uh, oh, okay, time out. Did I miss something? 
Or do we just live in a world where people automatically jump to conclusions without using logic to figure things out rationally? I mean, sleepwalking is pretty common. And this whole thing might have been resolved a lot sooner if, say for instance, Mickey had some sort of doctor's note proving that she does that. But nope, we have to milk the comedy drier than a cow that's anemic. Granted, I think the people on this show are willing to fly off the handle so quickly because if they did listen to reason, the show would be over in seven minutes flat and NBC would have to put on infomercials to fill the time. But because the conflict seems manufactured, viewers would feel more compelled to change the channel. Audiences are not that stupid, even for 1983 standards. Eventually, things get sorted out in a way you'd expect a sitcom to be in the land of contrivance. On that note, we launch into a lengthy monologue of why exactly Mickey walks in her sleep. This moment, by the way, originally had no background music, but we're adding music to the moment because if it isn't evident in this scene, this is the moment where she's trying to win over not just Stephanie Kramer, but the viewers as well. I lied to the guys and now I'm doing it to you. But why? I was afraid I'd get fired. I've been sleepwalking since I was seven. You must have put on a lot of miles. <laughs> I wore out my bunny slippers. After my folks split up, I used to wake up every morning in my mother's bed. I thought it was magic. I thought that in the middle of the night, I flew through the air into her arms. Blood am scared. Of you. Of me? Why me? Because I love this job. I feel like I'm hanging by a thread and you're holding the scissors. And the 1984 Emmy Award for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Comedy Series goes to... Jane Curtin on Kate and Alley. Because no matter how hard Copley tries here, we ain't buying it. Eventually, Kramer comes around to Copley's plight, and she promises not to be suspicious while Mickey continues to work for the boys. Afterwards, Mickey finally goes to sleep, and we never have to worry about her sleepwalking problems ever again. And thanks Satan for that, because if this entire series was focused entirely on that one aspect of her life, the show would have been gone in less than a month. The rest of the series continues to recycle old sitcom tropes like Al Gore at a waste disposal unit until the program was ultimately cancelled in the spring of 1984. So, where does this rookie cleaning lady get vacuumed up in telehell? Put on your rubber dish gloves as we do a little dusting on the Nine Circles. I said, Nine Circles. How come the circles aren't firing up? Why is there another tape going into the VCR? Aren't we done? Home, home, come on home, come on home to NBC. Hey, check it out, we got a fresh idea. Talking comedy, to make the whole house cheer. The time's the key, you're hearing it right. Prime time moves, 7.30 at night. What the hell is this? Why am I seeing Terry Copley and Tom Villard in this promo? Why am I seeing them performing together in the same promo? No. No, 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 no. This, this can't be right. This can't be right. Can it? Wikipedia, don't fail me now. 
Let's see. NBC. Prime time at 7.30. In the fall of 1987, NBC conceived a syndication package for its owned and operated stations under the brand Prime Time Begins at 7.30. Consisting of five sitcoms that each aired once a week and were produced by various production companies contracted by NBC. The series included Marblehead Manor, She's the Sheriff, You Can't Take It With You, Out of This World, I remember that one, and... A revival of the short-lived 1983 NBC series, We Got It Made. Are you kidding me? This has to be a mistake. This show is crap. There's no way they gave this show a second chance. Son of a bitch! Great! Now I have to talk about this, too! <sighs> yes, folks, it's true. We Got It Made somehow made a comeback, roughly three years after it was initially cancelled. This time around, airing in first-run syndication that just happened to be for a number of NBC affiliates. But while Copley and Villard came back for the revival, the rest of the cast had careers to lose and wisely declined to come back. So, a brand new cast of characters were put in. Replacing Matt McCoy's yuppie lawyer was actor John Hilmer, who, as we'll find out, may have been a step down from the original. We also get the introduction of Mickey's Neighbors, a father and son duo played by Ron Carabatsos and Lance Wilson-White. I guess they added a teen to the mix because this was airing in most of the country at 7.30pm, and most kids were still awake at that hour. Not that many kids watched the original 1983 version to begin with, but then again, I'm not a programming executive. Unfortunately, there's next to nothing available in terms of content for the show's revival. So, hey, I guess this means we don't have to review this part after all. Okay, can we get the nine circles now, please? Motherfucker! Looks like the forces of evil found one for me. Okay, why don't we compromise a little? I'll go over what happens in the episode as fast as I can, because I really don't think I'll be adding anything new to what we've done here so far. Is that okay? Okay. Can I have some speed-up music, please? The title sequence is better, but blander. No more annoying theme song. Also, Tom Ballard now gets top billing even though Terry Copley's the star. Shit happens. In this episode, Mickey's in a bad mood because an old friend is coming to visit her, and she happens to be more successful than Mickey. The boys try to reassure her while Mickey's friend comes in via helicopter because sitcom's got a sitcom, right? We gotta do something. Yeah, we gotta meet this Betty. She sounds fabulous. <laughs> Nobody can be that impressive. I'm impressed. Mickey's friend then tries to convince Mickey to come to an audition for an unspecified big show in an effort to add a little spark to Mickey's life, which is the main crux of her problem. She's a little restless just being a maid. Who doesn't hate their first job? Mickey's practicing, has a little bit of trouble, and the best trick she has up her sleeve is a Marlon Brando impression with hilarious results. Ha 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 ha. Should've looked out for me, Charlie. <laughs> I could have been somebody. <laughs> I could have been a contender. 
Mickey and her friend head down to the audition, which turns out to be not for any acting part, sort of, but rather a chance to be one of the gorgeous ladies of wrestling, or GLOW, long before it was a Netflix series. And to Maid's credit, they went to the trouble of bringing out a few of the real GLOW wrestlers as guest stars, including the likes of Hollywood, Vine, Debbie Debutante, Susie Spirit, and most notably, Colonel Ninochka. Are you puny capitalist bimbos here to audition? Well, uh, we were... Yeah, Pinko! Mickey's shocked that this is the acting gig that she's auditioning for, and the glow ladies expect her to do a couple moves, even though dusting is probably her best finishing move. Meanwhile, the boys show up for moral support, even though Mickey wants out. Mickey then tries to show off her moves, what little there are, against Debbie Debutante, with hilarious results, ha ha ha, laugh laugh laugh, keep going. The boys then tell Mickey that she doesn't have to do this, and new yuppie convinces Messy Jay to talk to Colonel Nanochka in an effort to pull Mickey out of the audition. The Bridget Nielsen knockoff then tries to make a move on him with even more hilarious results, ha 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 ha. Well, your colonelship, I just, I mean, I'm not... You know, for a Yankee pig, you're kind of cute. <laughs> New yuppie explains to Mickey that it's all an act, just as Hollywood and Vine sneak up behind him and show him otherwise. Yeah, Davey, run to mommy. <laughs> okay, okay. That's it, let's go. This thing quickly turns into a ripoff of yet another Three's Company episode, that's the one where Jack tries to be a boxer. Still more hilarious results happen, where Mickey stands up for the boys and herself as she kicks Hollywood and Vine's ass. Hey, I'm sorry! Forget it! Hey, I'm sorry, I'm sorry! And you, big punk! Huh? Easy, easy! I won't hurt you if you just leave him alone, okay? Okay, okay! Messy J may or may not be acting as Ninochka continues to make moves on him. Well, wait a minute, Ninochka, I... I... I just remembered I forgot to tip the towel man on the way in. <laughs> Jakey, Jakey! You are one slippery herring! Ha 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 ha! Hilarious. As wrestlers like what they see and they want Mickey to join, she politely declines. Everybody learns a valuable lesson, blah blah blah. One more end tag joke about Ninochka putting the finishing move on Jay. There's something to be said for detente. <laughs> Roll credits, cut print, the end. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, the revival was slightly better than the original one, but barely. Mickey still played too cutesy and innocent, and Jay was still a dopey fool, and yuppie lawyer man, no matter who played him, was still an uptight snob. Even the addition of Glow Wrestlers didn't do much to help this show in its second incarnation, as the show wound up getting dusted once and for all in 1988. And on that note, now can we fire up the circles, please? Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Originality, or lack thereof, plays a factor here. For let us not lose sight of the fact that this was a show that borrowed so many elements from previously existing shows, it would surprise me if the scripts were written by a blender. The quantity of these elements are so vast that we can make an easy call for gluttony on account of the fact that the show was overloaded with hackneyed, cliched material, leaving no room for anything remotely original. And because these all-too-familiar elements were used, this prompted the viewers to realize that a lot of what they were watching had been done to death on other shows. The average TV viewer, even for 1983, is not that stupid to know the differences between the innovators and the imitators. They were watching a wolf in tightly knit sheep's clothing, thus ringing the bell for heresy. Not to mention the fact that this show was put on at a time where a similar show on another network was on its last legs, and perhaps there was the possibility of a natural successor to that show being declared. The short shelf life proved otherwise. 
made was certainly no Three's company, hard as it tried to be. The fact that viewers still flock to watch that show in its final season only proved made to be the false prophet, thus tagging it for fraud. And of course, if the first few seconds of the show's opening credits with Terry in the tight t-shirt didn't already drive the point home, the slinky nightgowns and high-pitched schoolgirl voice would have done the same. For this show, not to be hit with lust over our main character would be an impossibility. Not that it was a bad thing, mind you, I'm sure the male demographics were pretty high each week, but there's more to luring viewers than just eye candy, especially in an era where the moral majority was on the rise. We Got It Made earns four out of nine circles of telehealth. Try as it may to have been somewhat entertaining, it also tried to do so by using a bag of tricks to get ahead instead of attempting to be something entertaining on its own merits, of which it barely had any. Of course, if the show aired during the 1970s when so-called Jiggle TV was in vogue, maybe it might have stood a chance. So, in that regard, perhaps the show was simply a victim of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But even more than that, this was supposed to be Fred Silverman's big comeback project after getting the boot from a major TV network. Having this be the result of that comeback only resulted in more skepticism from the industry that the Golden Gut lost his golden touch once and for all. But fear not, demons. This story does have a happy ending. For Silverman still had enough clout in the TV industry to keep trying, in spite of whatever missteps he made in the past. And because of that cloud, he was able to put his stamps on such future TV stalwarts as Matlock, Diagnosis Murder, and the revival of Perry Mason in TV movie form. Of course, his clout had to be re-earned the hard way, because the rest of the flops that he left in his wake were so downright diabolical that they forever stained the institution of television thanks to perennial inclusions onto lists of the worst shows of all time. But before we can get to those shows, I think we need to take down an appetizer first. Next time on Telehell, we celebrate Mother's Day by taking a look at what TV Guide once called the second worst TV show of all time. Listen, Mom, I realize it was a... Oh, boy. It was a terrible inconvenience for everybody, but... But at least it was worth it. No kidding. We foiled those car strippers, huh? Yes, but I hope they got some sleep. Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. There's now more ways to listen to Telehell than ever before. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehell.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast.